Perhaps you've lost a loved one recently, like Carolyn Puhatch, uh, who lost her father, and they had the funeral this last week. Or perhaps you've lost your job recently, or you lost your mobility. Uh, did your spouse desert you, or leave you to, uh, and, and leave you to raise the children alone? Are you ignored or mocked for your faith? Have you become anxious about our economy or the spread of evil? Did you get a bad report from the doctor recently? Or maybe it's just parenting itself. It's wearing you down. You've got two or three or four kids or five kids, and it's just wearing you down. Does the future frighten you? Jesus wants to encourage you today, just as he did his disciples. That's what you've come for, for encouragement today. The evening before his crucifixion, Jesus spent much time caring for his anxious disciples. He should, he should have been the one who was being cared for. He was going to be crucified the next morning. But in his last hours, fully knowing what was about to happen to him, we see Jesus assuring and caring for his disciples instead. It says in, in the Gospel of John, Do not let your heart, and this is Jesus speaking, Do not let your heart be troubled, he said to these disciples just before he died. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Why were they troubled and anxious? Because he had just told them that shortly he would be leaving them and they wouldn't see him for some time. And how did Jesus give them assurance and hope? By focusing their attention on heaven. That's how he did it. That is the, that is the uh, antidote to these problems, to the worries and the troubles and the pressures that come. He said, focus your attention on heaven. McLean's uh, just... Uh, issued a, a new uh, issue with the cover title, The Heaven Boom. And uh, they talked about the near-death experiences and said that the near-death experiences account for why so many people are now beginning to believe in heaven. And uh, they said the percentage in the U.S. is uh, 81%, and in Canada it's over 50%. But what does the Bible have to say about heaven? Because God created heaven, and God had something to say about heaven in his word. And so the Holy Spirit wants to encourage you today about your ultimate destination if you know that you're going to heaven. First of all, we, we discovered that it's a city, and we just sang about that. It's very interesting. When I sat down for the 9 o'clock service and they began to sing in the city, I couldn't believe what they were singing. Uh, that they had chosen that song because right toward uh, to the end of the week I was I was planning to speak on another topic and as Fran and I were listening in prayer together the Holy Spirit said no I want you to preach on heaven and I couldn't believe it here I prepared a message on heaven didn't talk to the worship team and they and they uh, brought a song on heaven Revelation 21 says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy, what is it, what does it say? City, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Heaven is actually a city and God dwells or lives there right now. In Deuteronomy, for example, 26, it says, Look down from your holy habitation from heaven. That's where God dwells. Abram who preceded Moses and the law, this is before the law and before Moses, uh, either saw it, heaven that is, or was told about that city. Because in Hebrews chapter 11 it says, by faith, speaking of Abraham, went, uh, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is who? God is the designer and builder of heaven. Isn't that amazing? Note, heaven isn't endless space. Oh, no, it isn't. It's, a, it's physical and was designed and built by God. It's not just space, endless space, blue and white space, as McLean shows it. That's not what it is. It is physical and was designed and built by God. It's not just a gas where we, we, where we go. 
and float around and can't actually see anything. It's physical. It was designed and built by God. It says in Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country. That, he's talking again about Abraham and some of these great uh, saints of the Old Testament. They desire a better country than the one they had. I mean, if you were, if heaven was just space, blue and white space, like on the cover of the McLean's magazine, would you consider that better than the place where you are right now? Yes or no? No, I don't want to go to space. Amen? I, I quite like this planet. But as it is, they desire a better country, not the same, better, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a what? A city. A city. When Jesus said, I, I go to prepare a place for you, it sounds very familiar. Remember, he said that to, to the disciples. I go to prepare a place, and here in, in Hebrews, we see that God has prepared a city. Jesus is God, and that's what he went to prepare, a place for them and for you and I in a city. Second, this city is spatial. In other words, this isn't a spirit domain. It's spatial. It occupies space, has dimensions. The city, uh, according to Revelations and John writing, is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles, down one side, its length and width and height are equal, and he measured its wall, 72 yards, which is over 200 feet, by the way, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, meaning they're, they're measurements that you and I understand. That's how, that's how he built it. Um, when, you, when you build a house, you, uh, you take measurements, you design it, you build it. That's what, that's what God did. The measurements are understandable, in human terms, and it takes up space. Third, this city is huge. It is really huge. I've, I've uh, visited some of the great cities of the world. One of my favorite was New York City. Fran and I walked up, uh, walked all over, upper and mid and lower Manhattan, including Ground Zero, Brooklyn Bridge, Times Square, UN, St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, Battery Park. We took a boat cruise all around Manhattan, the east and west side, the Hudson River on the one side, and then by Brooklyn Bridge on the other. The Statue of Liberty, we hiked Central Park, and Fran even shopped at Macy's. Ha. <laughs> huh. Yeah. And I loved every minute there. And I'd go there again. Eric and Ange Klippenstein go there every, well, not every year, but <laughs> they've gone there quite a number of times. They love going to Manhattan. It's a grand city. But what I read about God's city is absolutely mind-blowing. 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles long. I love it already. That's a big city, wouldn't you say? There's going to be a lot to explore, a lot to see just there. New York City covers uh, an area, a mass area, of 321 square miles. Greater London, uh, where I've also been, 626 square miles. Sao Paulo, where we were recently, 760 square miles. And uh, Seoul, South Korea, 400 and some square miles. Tokyo, the largest city with 37 million people, covering, covers a whopping 1,500 square miles. Is that big or is that big? Is that big? Anybody talking to me today? That is a huge city. It is very, very big. The city of heaven, get this now, I had to, I had to do it a couple of times with my calculator to make sure I got it right, is 2.25 million square miles. 1,500 times as big as the largest city in the world. In fact, it is two-thirds the total area of the continental USA. 1,500 miles across would be like Vancouver to Thunder Bay, very roughly. And if a, city, uh, if a city is that big, what do you expect to find in it? Huh? People. A few? Like in a village? Many people. Amen? Hey, you know, sometimes people think, well, you know, there's a few of us that are, there's a handful of us going to heaven. There's, there's going to be a handful, you know, grandma and granddad and uncle and aunt. And I, I guess that's about it. Some, some, no, it's going to be, it's going to be jam-packed with people. Is that amazing? I love that, don't you? I don't want to be alone on the, in, in the universe. No, no, no. 
and there's going to be lots of people. Chris did a calculation that I saw uh, some time ago based on New York City's density, and it came out to 12 to 13 billion that you could fit in that city if, if you had the same density. And uh, you can imagine how big uh, the central park of a, of, uh, of a city like the city of God is going to be. Amen? So, uh, you know, it's going to be huge. And I don't know if, if, if it's 12, 13 billion, but I do know this. It will be very many people. The biggest crowd I ever was in was at Seoul Olympic Stadium with 130,000 people packed in to pray one day, all day. And I'll, I'll never forget it. And Len was there and Chris was there as well. And uh, they had invited 120,000 people from the church were there. That left 10,000 seats for the 10,000 delegates. We were on the outside of the stadium. The rest of them were already inside, and they had each section had different colors, red and yellow and green and purple and cross. They made crosses in one and, you know, and different shapes and stuff. They had bands going. They had planes flying up and down through the uh, Olympic Stadium. There was a lot of noise, a lot of commotion, and then the doors opened, and they marched us in right where the, uh, right where the athletes march in. At, at an Olympic event, you know, at the grand opening, they marched us in, and the entire stadium rose to its feet, and they jumped to their feet. They were screaming and cheering. It was a deafening roar as they applauded, and they kept applauding as we marched down the track until we got to our seats and sat down, 10,000 of us. It was stunning. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, and I was thinking, even as we were singing about the city, you know, the city, and that one, one of the lines there says, as the saints come marching in, right? It said in that song. And uh, I thought about that. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. You can't even count them. Innumerable unbelievable. And you talk about multicultural? Oh my, from every tribe and nation and ethnicity. And, and number four, this city is absolutely beautiful. <clears throat> Our favorite city is still Vancouver, North Shore Mountain Range with Cypress and Grouse and Seymour overlooking Vancouver. Picturesque Howe Sound next to the Coastal Mountain Range. Burrard Inlet Bridge by Lionsgate Bridge. Stanley Mark, uh, Park and the famous seawall. Stunning Horseshoe Bay walled on three sides by mountains. Canada Place in the Convention Center on Coal Harbor. False Creek ringed by the famous Granville Island, uh, Island Market. And 25 miles of hiking. Uh, asphalt paved hiking trails walking trails there, and uh, we spent a lot of time walking that. It's, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Revelation 21 says about the heavenly city, the material of the wall was what? Jasper, and the city was pure, like clear glass, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates was a single pearl, <clears throat> and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. You know, I walked uh, some years back, I walked on the Great Wall of China, and uh, it's a world wonder. The main line, the main trunk is 2,145 miles long with an extra 1,770 miles of branches, uh, uh, walled branches, for a total of 3,900 miles of wall built over many Chinese dynasties. The wall is up to 25 feet high in some places and is between 15 and 30 feet wide. And I walked on that, but that's nothing compared to this indescribable wall around this city. 200 feet high, 6,000 miles of wall. And why would this be figurative when the Chinese have already built one that's 3,900 miles long? Don't you think God can build a longer one? I think he can. And all made up of the most stunning stone ever. No drab gray. Only precious stone, the whole thing. And I've seen the widest street in the world, 9 de Julio Avenue in Buenos Aires. Seven lanes in each direction flanked on either side by parallel streets, two lanes each. That's a total of 18 lanes 
well, that's 18 official lanes. They actually turned it on their own into about 22 lanes, depending on how they drive. <laughs> it's, a, it's a grand street. It's stunning. It's amazing to see. I wonder what heaven's going to be like. And I've seen cobblestone streets, but streets of pure gold? No. And did I mention it's on a mountain? Oh, yes. I love mountains. Do you love mountains? When I was in Hong Kong, we went up to Victoria Peak, 1,800 feet high, with its famous view of Hong Kong's Victoria Harbor and city center. In Revelation 21, speaking of the, uh, the, the city of God, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What a what a beautiful perspective. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a, a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, if you're like me, you might be bothered by the following statement or the following thing that's written in Scripture. It bothered me for some time till I started uh, looking around Scripture and finding something else. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That bothered me. No water. I've always loved rivers and lakes and oceans. All my vacations, all my life, they're always by water. Always by water and preferably by mountains. God originally created the seas and declared them very good. That's before the fall. God said he created it and it was all very good. Would you agree with that? Yeah. The curse had a devastating effect on creation, including the seas. And to ancient people, the sea was frightful and fearsome, a watery grave. So I think what he's saying here is that there will be no more treacherous waters that separate nations, des destroy ships, and drown loved ones. And the reason I think this is because of what other passages reveal about water. Take a look at the next chapter in Revelation. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of, water, of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Clear as crystal. Water. Now, our Manitoba rivers aren't crystal clear. Would you agree with that? <laughs> they're, they're good, but they, they are not crystal clear. But if you go to Georgian Bay, you get crystal clear water. You just walk in and you can see your toes the whole time you're walking in. It's very cold, but you can see. And flowing rivers go somewhere, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? We would expect lakes and oceans. In fact, that's what Isaiah 60 talks about in verse 5 and 9. It says, the wealth on the what? Seas will be brought to you to... Uh, to you the riches of the nations will come in the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold on the seas. Years ago, I snorkeled on the Red Sea, snorkeled in the Red Sea. And uh, I'd never snorkeled before in the tremendous reef there. And I saw, uh, I saw just the most incredibly beautiful schools of fish. I mean, different, brilliant colors and, and the coral and everything. I, I just was blown away. I just, you know, I opened my eyes wide and I was wearing a snorkel because I was snorkeling. And uh, <laughs> when, uh, when you're snorkeling, you shouldn't be talking. But I was so overcome by uh, this whole new world that I was swimming in that I said, oh my God. And I wasn't using it in a blasphemous way. I prayed to him. I said, oh my God, what have you all made? This is stunning. This is amazing. It's incredible. And, uh, and God declared it good. And there will be, and, and, and there will be commerce. There's ships on the seas. There's going to be commerce. Those of you that like business and commerce and work, there's going to be work in heaven. Ships, trading. Can you believe that? Some of you are going to discover work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That wasn't in my notes. Fifth, this city has the greatest foods. Yes, you will eat. Jesus did after his resurrection. He still had a body, though he could uh, appear through locked doors. I've eaten some of the most exotic meats and baked goods and fruit in different parts of the world, and heaven won't disappoint. It won't disappoint. It says, then he brought me uh, back to the door of the temple. This is in Ezekiel. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. 
The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region from Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. That's interesting. Because that, that sea to the east there, that's the Dead Sea. And it's got such a high um, uh, salt content that if you try to swim in it, it's, 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 bizarre. it's kind of bizarre. I've done it. And you just float. You can't sink on that thing. But nothing grows there. Uh, no, uh, no, uh, no fish grow there as well. But it's going to become fresh. That's what it says. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. There's going to be fishing again. Wow. From Engedi to Englaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Wow, there'll be, uh, there'll be fish in that region, many more than what I saw when I was at the, at the Red Sea. And you'll fish for them and you'll eat them as well, which means there's going to be commerce and fishing, for those of you that like fishing and work. And that's not all you'll eat. Fruit, plenty of it, fresh. Back to Ezekiel 47, it says, And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Man, that sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? Well, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what John says. Maybe he's quoting uh, Ezekiel. I wouldn't be surprised. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. By the way, that's the tree of life that you found in Genesis in, uh, in the Garden of Eden and is no longer, but it is there. They were seeing it. Ezekiel saw it. And John saw it. The, the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden isn't where it used to be. That's because heaven went up. God took the Garden of Eden up. And he's, his city is up somewhere in another place. But the tree of life is still there. And uh, anyway, uh, yielding its fruit. Sixth, this city is ancient. You like history and culture like in European cities. Some of you like that. Or Middle Eastern countries like Jerusalem and Greece and Egypt. I've stood at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I've hiked up the Masada, sailed the Sea of Galilee, walked through Nazareth and Bethlehem, toured the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum. And how about the ancient, but how about the ancient city of God? <laughs> you think Jerusalem's old. How about the ancient city of God? John saw this city 2,000 years ago. Abraham either saw it or was told about it, and that's why he was looking forward to it at least 4,000 years ago. He, he saw it then, and I believe that's one of the reasons we know it's, it, it came from the, uh, from the Garden of Eden, and it's gone up. Ezekiel 1 says that he saw the heavens were opened, and he saw into the heavens. Ezekiel saw it too. Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he's, uh, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on the throne. And he couldn't believe what he was seeing. The heavens were parted so that they, that they could see. That's amazing. And Jesus said it was founded from the foundation of the world in Matthew 25, verse 34. He said that it was created from the foundation of the world. Heaven has been there as long as we've been here. And I don't mean me and you. Some of you have been here a little longer, but, um, but as long as mankind's been here. Wow, that's amazing. And in this city, you won't walk through vast museums reading about great men and women as I did in the world-famous National Museum of, uh, of Korea in Seoul, South Korea. You'll actually meet them. Adam, for example. Lots of questions for him, wouldn't you say? Like, why did you do it? I mean, it really messed me up. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it true? <laughs> he's going to be hiding. <laughs> I, bet he, I bet he's got a closet somewhere where he hides. 
Abraham, the great man of faith who went, not knowing where he went, and was promised that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Ruth, who said, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Amen? She was a Gentile. She wasn't a, she wasn't a Jewess at all. She was a Gentile. But she found God. She adopted their God. And he became the, her God. Amazing. David, Fran's favorite Bible character. A descendant of Ruth and a man after man's uh, uh, God's own heart who accomplished many great feats, including the slaying of Goliath. And I can see some guys lining up to talk to him and say, David, how did you do that? Like, like one shot and you got it right dead center like that. Like, are you really that good? Could you do it five out of five? Like you had five. Could you have done it five out of five? And, and, uh, or or did, did God have to help that stone? Was it actually going off the mark? And You know, it's going to be endless conversations. Moses, my favorite Bible character, who said, if you, he said to the Lord, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Yeah, I'm going to want to talk to him about leadership a lot. Rahab the harlot who was redeemed and played an important part in the conquest of Jericho and uh, then was part of the lineage of Jesus. That just, uh, she just might be one of your favorites. Or how about the transformed tax collector Zacchaeus? And some of you might really identify with him. Or how about Saul, the persecutor, whose name was changed to Paul and who became the zealous and most famous missionary of all time? Oh, Paul. I mean, you were a rascal. How did, I mean, what did God do with you? This is unbelievable. What trophies of grace, wouldn't you say? And you'll we'll want to talk about it. And Elijah, who called down fire in his famous contest on Mount Carmel, and then was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Can you play a replay for us? How about Mary, the mother of Jesus? What a story she'll be telling. Peter will be telling about how he changed from being a coward to a fearless apostle who refused to die as, as, as Jesus had died and asked instead that he be allowed to be crucified upside down. And of course, there will be the greats of church history, Augustine and St. Francis of Assisi and reformers like Luther and Knox and John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. Even Menno Simons will be there. And of course, there will be William and Catherine Booth and Ab President Abram Lincoln and Billy and Ruth Graham and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and Leo Tolstoy and John Bunyan and Wilbur uh, William Wilberforce, the slavery abolitionists in England, and Florence Nightingale, and how about the great Christian scientist Nicholas uh, Copernicus, the, uh, who came up with the idea that the planets revolve around the sun, and Francis Bacon and Johannes Kepler, the mathematician and astronomer, or Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle and Louis Pasteur, and musicians like Johann Sebastian Bach and George Frederick Handel and uh, Zach Pearson. <laughs> Amen? And we'll, we'll, uh, people will be lining up and say, George Frederick Handel, how did you write the Messiah in 24 days? That's impossible on the, on, uh, on the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did you do that in 24 days? That masterpiece. And people will be talking to him. Seventh, this city will rule over the nations. Doesn't make you want to sing the song again. Yeah. Isaiah 2, verse 2 says, It'll come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. Do you see that? There's going to be nations there. There's going to be government there. There's going to be politics there. Good politics. Basically only one party. <laughs> and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen. And there will be humans in politics. Kelvin Gertzen has work after all. <laughs> huh. Oh, man. This is fantastic. 
In the parable of the, of the faithful servants, Jesus said that they would be given authority over ten cities or five. He, he, he called ten servants in, in this parable and gave each one of them in this particular parable one mina each. And then he told them to invest. And later he came back and he, uh, and he held them accountable for what they had done. And one of them, it says, came forward and said, I've earned ten minas more. He said, now you go and take charge of ten cities. In another one, he said, uh, I, I turned the, the one mina into five. He said, okay, you're going to be in charge of five cities. Is that amazing? Uh, we're going we're gonna to rule with Christ. I think it's amazing. First Corinthians 6 says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Eight. Physical bodies will inhabit this city, not spirits, just floating. We'll receive new bodies. Some think they're just spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15 says, so, so, and this is where they get it from. <clears throat> so will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown, a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it sounds like uh, we, here we get the physical body. In heaven, we get, the, we get wings. And it makes all of us feel kind of uncomfortable. It would appear that it is clear that we get a spiritual body, but just a, just, just a minute. Five chapters before that, Paul said, For I, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. He's talking about the exodus in the Old Testament, right? From Egypt. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, which was what? What was the food that God gave him? Manna. He calls it spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Does that mean that it was gas? That it was gasish? Is that what it means? No, not at all. The word spiritual here is the same Greek word used for spiritual body. Paul was not saying that the manna they ate and the water they drank was non-physical. Unquestionably, it was physical food that they ate. 1 Corinthians 14 says, and here we start to see how Paul is using it, if you claim to be a prophet or think you are spiritual, you're a spiritual person, you should recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord himself. Paul wasn't saying that the Corinthian believers were non-physical. What Paul meant was the source of our present physical body is the first natural man who is Adam, and that the source of our future resurrected physical bodies will be the heavenly man, the second Adam. Jesus Christ, who is, uh, who is spiritual, he's the second Adam. That's all it means, the source. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 bears this out and says, And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Our resurrected bodies will be different, but still the same. Aren't you glad about that? There's some things that I want my body to be different about. And then there's other par parts about it that I want to remain the same. And we'll be recognizable. Re people will recognize us and we'll recognize others. The disciples recognized Jesus after his resurrection on the shore as he cooked breakfast. They also recognized Moses and Elijah. And if they recognized Moses and Elijah who they had never met, how much more will we recognize those that we have known? Amen. You will recognize relatives and friends and, and colleagues. And that, uh, I think that's just tremendous. And we're going to have relationships. But before his, <clears throat> before his creation was complete, he said there was one thing that wasn't good. Remember that? He said it's not good for man to be, what? Alone. There's going to be relationships. That, they're not going to disappear. Jesus himself said in Luke 16, he said, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make what? Friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Our friends in heaven appear to be people whose lives we've touched on earth now. Think about this for a minute, uh, ju just for a second. You know, <clears throat> we're involved in this big project in Africa and we're moving into other areas in Canada and South America and so on and so forth. But think about Africa right now, Uganda, and particularly the, um, the Good Samaritan Center. And when we started there, they had about 800 orphans and kids that were looking after. And now it's, uh, it's 2,200 because of the work that Southland's doing there. The 
teams that go there, the people that give, the people that pray at the prayer summits, the people that pray in their homes, the uh, people that serve so that others can go and do other things. They serve in the church like that. Every bit that you do is counting towards making friends. You're investing in other people. And it says that when we get to heaven, people, just think about it. You're going to need eternity just to deal with all these relationships, just to do all these things, the work, the play, the investigation, the going around the city and seeing everything and talking to all these guys, and they're going to have seminars and what have you, and then you're going to meet these people, and there's going to be, there's not, there's not going to be one or two or five or ten. There can, be, there can be hundreds. There could be thousands. There could be hundreds of thousands of people that you can be affecting. Maybe millions through this church. And people that you've never met before. You don't have a foggy clue. You'll be busy doing your, you know, uh, busy working in your garden or whatever. And somebody will walk up to you and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I'm so glad that you, that you, you helped me get here. And I just appreciate it so much. And you say, who are you? Oh, I'm from, uh, I, I was, uh, I, I'm from Campella. Oh, you're from Campella. Yeah, I was in the Good Samaritan Center. And because of you, I'm here. Is that amazing? Church, is that amazing? I think it's just absolutely un- incredible. But heaven is going to come down. Where is heaven going to be? I mean, we talk about this big city somewhere. So what happens to our planet? Some think it'll be burned up and that we go up to heaven. Are they right? Second Peter chapter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up according to the NASB and many other translations. It seems clear enough. Just seems like God's going to come and just torch this place. That's it. If she's gone. She's, she's vaporized and the earth is gone. But take a look at the context. A few verses before, it says they deliberately forget, those that say that God is not coming, you know, that you're just looking for him and he's never coming. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of the water by water, as in Genesis. He spoke and light was created. He spoke and people were created, so on and so forth. By these waters also, the world of that time, now he's talking about the Noetic flood, the flood during Noah's time, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Peter's reference point for understanding future world destruction was the past world destruction, which was the flood. God's past cleansing, but did God destroy the entire earth? I mean, was it gone? Did it vaporize when he flooded it? Yes or no? No, he didn't. It was a cleansing judgment by water. It didn't obliterate the world. God's future cleansing judgment by fire will not obliterate the world either. That's his point in making the comparison between the two. The older manuscripts use the, the Greek word huresco, or expose would be the translation, and instead of katakaio, burned up. And the word behind it is actually horesco, not katakaio, which means it's a poor translation if you say burned up. It means to be exposed or laid bare. And the NIV captures it very well. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be what? Laid bare. Laid bare for what? For judgment, for God's judgment. The bad will be burnt off, allowing the good to be renewed. Forest fires do that, right? They renew the earth for new growth. And that's what the Bible means by a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't mean he's just just destroying and, and obliterating one. He's restoring, recreating, renewing, as in church renewal. God is into renewing, and I like that. It's different, this world is different, this new world will be superior, yet the same. It's continuous with the old world. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. He doesn't obliterate you when you get saved and start right from scratch, does he? No, he restores, he recreates, he regenerates, he renews you. 
to, all, uh, to your original working condition. And when we are saved, we become a new creation or creature. It doesn't mean I'm no longer Ray. Fran wakes up one morning and finds George lying next to her. No, it means that I've been salvaged, taken from the dump heap and restored to original working condition. Different, but still the same. Amen? Different, but better. I was reminded of something Paul said as I was preparing for the message. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here he parallels and says, just like, uh, just like your body needs to be <laughs> recreated, restored, remade, renewed, this whole planet has to be re uh, done in the same way. All of creation, including us, will be renewed and restored, not destroyed. No more droughts, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, global warming, pollution, insect infestations, crop failures, heat waves, freezing temperatures. Amen. Amen. No more wars and warlords <coughs> lords and rapists and murders and gangs and drugs and drug cartels, exploiters of the poor, slums, refugee camps, mafia, holocaust, ethnic cleansing, suicide bombers, hijackers, kidnappers, fascists, and despots. No more. No more cancers, MS, heart disease, diabetes, genetic disorders, allergies, mental illness, arthritis, asthma, Alzheimer's, birth defects, death, or dying. Amen. Most of us will be out of a job. Doctors, nurses, preachers, counselors, lawyers, police officers, judges, armed forces, plan for job retraining. <laughs> Amen. Different, better, absolutely, but still the same earth. And then the heavenly city where God dwells will come down to reside on earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, after it's all burnt up and, and it's ready. It's going to be renewed. The earth is going to be renewed. And then this heavenly city that once was here is, is going to come back and it's going to settle here. That big massive city and government and Jesus is going to take control of government. And it's going to be an amazing time. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Enoch walked with God. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God until they were expelled. And uh, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any more mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and God will dwell with man just like he did in the beginning. Jesus. Now we see him only as in a reflection in a mirror, but then face to face. You know, yesterday, I started off my day early in my office, and I was reading in the Gospel of Mark, and I came to a place and a verse just jumped out at me as the Spirit of Christ just spoke into my heart. And he said, I'm pleased with you, my son. Now, I'm not saying he was saying that because, uh, because of what I do or anything like that. He was speaking to me as, a, as one of his kids. And when he speaks, you know he's speaking. And I just began to weep. I just sat at my desk, not with tears of... of um, remorse or tears of sadness or anything like that, but just, just relief and tears of just intense joy. I said, Jesus, thank you. He spoke, he spoke to me again. He speaks to me. He spoke to me this morning. He spoke to me yesterday. I think about the times that he's spoken to me over the years. I think about that time in Philadelphia when we didn't know what was going to happen to Fran. That song, Jesus Loves Me, came up on the, on the jukebox and I, these waves of liquid love just washed over us and we just sat, the two of us, and just cried on the secular university campus. 
I think about the times when he has said to me, Ray, I, I, want you to, I want you to trust me now, and I want you to leave your career, or I want you to leave this, and I want you to go do this, but God, how are we going to do it? And he said, look to me, trust me. You can trust me. And I think about the number of times, the, the miracles in my life, and I start thinking about them. And then I think about his guidance, his provision. I think about times uh, when somebody, I remember a pastor coming over to our house when, when I was in school. We had four little kids, and God had said, I want you to leave your career, and I want you to go and prepare for ministry. And I came to the door, and France said, uh, I came home, and France said, we don't have anything in the house except a bag of rice and a, a bottle of mustard in our fridge. That's it. And I remember how a pastor came along and his kids, and God had spoken to them. They had no idea. And, and they came and they brought bags of groceries and filled the cupboards and filled the refrigerator. And they had no idea. And I remember him, the pastor taking me aside in another room and he says, Lonnie, that's his wife, and he said, Lonnie just came to me and said, you don't have any groceries in your house at all. And you got four little kids. He said, Dirk, why didn't you tell me? And I looked at him with tears running down my eyes and I said, if I can't trust my heavenly father to provide, then I'm getting into the wrong business. He's talked to me many times. He loves me. He holds me. He cares for me. He guides me. He directs. He provides. And he's been doing that for many, if not all of you here. Isn't it so? And I long for that day. I long for that day when I stand before him and I see him face to face. Not, like, you know, not in a whisper, not vaguely through a veil, but I see him face to face. The one who died on the cross for me. I think about how the rascal I was and how he changed and transformed my life. And some of you are rascals or were rascals and God has changed you. How can you have a church like this with such unity and harmony? This is a huge, huge family. How can you have such unity and such harmony if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus changed you and me? Wouldn't you agree? I know families of four that, are, that absolutely tear each other apart. And here's a massive family, and they love one another. And when you need volunteers, they just volunteer by the hundreds, week after week. You don't have to beg, you don't have to pull, you don't have to do anything. It's because of what Jesus has done. Isn't it true? And you and I are going to get to see him face to face, finally, once for all. Amen? In fact, he's the goal of the whole thing. Did you know that? Everything else I said about heaven was actually just filler because I need to fill space and time this morning. <laughs> the real thing that, you go, that you're going for is Jesus and what he did for you. He loves you. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus into your heart. You know, in that Revelation passage where it talked uh, in chapter 21, and we quoted it in the first part, it talked about heaven in the, in the last part, and I put both of them on the screen. What I didn't put was the part in the middle. It's a part that, I'm not, that, I, that I dread. Revelation 21.8 says, But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Contrary to what the McLean's article says, not everybody is going to heaven. But we can. Jesus said in Mark, do you know that he taught, I've been going uh, with a fine tooth comb through, through the Gospels um, and uh, listing some topics, and Jesus spoke so much about hell, and actually not nearly as much about heaven. That's because he wasn't so worried about you if you're going to heaven. He was worried about if you weren't. He was trying to warn. And Jesus says this morning that you don't have to go there. 
He says, repent and believe. Repent, that means turn from your wicked ways, your rebellious ways, your sinful ways, and turn to him and believe that he died on the cross for your sins, paid it up, cleaned it up so that you could stand before God. Isn't that a good deal? And he invites you to do that simple thing. And maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've never done that. You've never turned from your sin and turned to Jesus and let him come into your life and change and transform you as he did so many people in the Bible and how he's done it in my life and so many people here in this, in this audience. Why don't we just pray right now and I'm going to ask the entire congregation to pray prayer with me, inviting Jesus to uh, come into your life to save you and uh, asking for forgiveness of sins and repenting of it. And if you mean that as we pray it, you pray it along out loud with us, if you mean that, then Jesus will come in and do exactly that and do great things in your life too. And you'll have a future with him one day as well. And that would be something to look forward to, wouldn't it? Let's bow for prayer. Church, pray along with me. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. I've been re uh, living in rebellion against you. I've lived my own life. I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. I was on the throne of my life. And I've made a mess of my life. And I ask you to forgive me. And I turn and repent from my ways. And I'm turning to you. And I'm asking you to forgive me for my sins. I want to thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. In my place, that you paid my penalty. And right now, I receive you into my life. I ask you to take control of my life, to be in charge. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, and you meant that, when you prayed it, then God has begun the wonderful work of recreating and renewing you. He will begin today and in the days to come. You need to join with other believers as they show you how you can submit to Jesus and how he can change your life. Father, thank you for what you've done this morning. And we ask you to bless your people as they dismiss in a few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.